The Bob Murphy Show, episode 165. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today we're going to be talking with Dan McCarthy. Dan is a very interesting, thoughtful fellow, and I saw him make a Facebook post where he chastised conservatives and libertarians for their contempt for democracy, which he considered very ill-advised. So I will, once the interview gets underway officially, in the context of the interview, I'll read the long excerpt from Dan's Facebook post to set the tone for the conversation. So I won't do that now. But for those of you who don't know who Dan is, let me go ahead and read to you from his official bio at The American Conservative. Daniel McCarthy is the editor of Modern Age, a conservative review, and editor-at-large of The American Conservative. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, The Spectator, The National Interest, Reason, and many other publications. Outside of journalism, he has worked as Internet Communications Coordinator for the Ron Paul 2008 presidential campaign and as Senior Editor of ISI Books. He is a graduate of Washington University in St. Louis, where he studied classics. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Dan McCarthy. Well, Dan, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. I'm delighted to be here. So why don't we, I know a lot of my listeners probably know who you are. You've been on Tom's show a few times, I think, and so on. But can you just give the brief background of your role in this grand ecosystem of intellectuals who talk about the government? Sure. Well, I think uh, you and I have known each other, Bob, uh, going back, uh, wow, almost 20 years, to be honest, Yeah. (laughs) to the days of, uh, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s with the uh, Mises Institute. I was a uh, Mises Institute graduate fellow in 2003. That was the same year I came to Washington, D.C. and became a a staff writer at the American Conservative Magazine. And uh, over the next couple of years, I remained at that magazine and uh, before uh, leaving for a little time to to become a... um, uh, a, a book editor at uh, ISI Books in Wilmington, Delaware. That was in 2007. And then following that, I went to work for the Ron Paul presidential campaign in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I returned to the American Conservative magazine, uh, became the editor-in-chief of the magazine in 2010. Uh, I had that position until the end of 2016. Then I became uh, the editor of Modern Age, the quarterly journal, in 2017. And uh, I also am the director of the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies. So a variety of things. And uh, in addition to all of that, I have, uh, you know, freelance writing that's appeared uh, everywhere from The Spectator to The New York Times to uh, Reason Mm -hmm. to um, The National Interest and other publications. Okay. um, Maybe just so the listeners have a better sense of like where you're coming from. And and by the way, what I like about you is on certain issues, I can't predict what you're going to say. So that doesn't, of course, mean that you're unprincipled. It means you're very nuanced and you're not tribalistic, if you get what I'm saying. Like, you know, in other words, it's not that you check in with your team to see what's our stance on this. Like, you you seem like you think about it, you know, fresh with, you know, hey, what do I think about this? So w- what was it, for example, like, why did you work for the Ron Paul campaign? What was it in particular that 
Well, mostly because uh, Ron Paul was the peace candidate, mm -hmm. and he was, you know, the most outspoken critic of the foreign policy that George W. Bush had been conducting, mm -hmm. which was, of course, a complete disaster for the Middle East and uh, not exactly a good thing for America either. Um, you know, and I support Ron Paul on uh, his constitutionalism. I support him on, uh, you know, his criticism of the Federal Reserve, and just a wonderful, you know, human being and a wonderful candidate. My background before that, I should say, uh, you know, is with, uh, you know, uh, Pat Buchanan, for example, was one of the, the great figures that I was uh, sort of inspired by mm -hmm. uh, in terms of becoming involved with politics. So the, the sort of um, connection between Pat Buchanan and Ron Paul is what used to be called, you know, sort of paleoconservatism and paleolibertarianism. Mm -hmm. uh, those terms have always been sort of imprecise, and they've always described uh, a number of people with quite different uh, qualities. But uh, that sort of paleosynthesis was part of where I was coming from and still is for the most part. So as you know, Dan, I do want to get into this Facebook post that you made about democracy and how you think libertarians are wrong in, the, in their typical reactions to it or commentary on it. But j just for the benefit of our listeners here, because the stuff you just touched on, I realized I think there's probably a large swath of them who don't fully get, put it to you this way. So me growing up, there was a brief period where I, I don't know if I ever thought of myself as a conservative, but certainly the people I listened to, that's what they were in terms of U.S. politics. Like Rush Limbaugh, Cal uh, Thomas, Mona Charon, you know, that's, they called themselves conservatives. And they tended to be war hawks, right? That, that you know, it was very aggressive and, oh, dude, watch out for those liberal Democrats. They're just going to lie down and let, you know, let these dictators walk all over us and whatever. And you, you know, there's, one, there's one language these people understand, you know, that kind of language. So... For some people, like, can you just explain that, you know, what, what, in terms of U.S. history and the political factions and whatnot, in terms of why, at what point did, it, did the conservative view become like U.S. empire, let's call it, to be provocative? And as opposed to like, so are you guys, are you guys real conservatives or are you weird conservatives? And those guys, you know, that, that kind of issue. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, opposition to a very aggressive foreign policy is something that has cropped up on both the left and the right in American history uh, time and time again in different sort of um, permutations at different times. Uh, in the um, you know, early 20th century, many of the outstanding critics of U.S. interventionism in World War I and, uh, and later as well uh, were coming from the right. Now, in the World War One era, a lot of them were actually Democrats, but they were Democrats who today would be considered uh, very conservative. They were often, uh, you know, from the Midwest, for example. And uh, in the period after World War II, a lot of the critics of U.S. foreign policy, some of the, the notable ones, were people like uh, Senator uh, Robert Taft from Ohio, mm -hmm. who was a, a Republican, uh, who was, you know, known as Mr. Conservative, in fact, Mr. Republican. And um, there was this uh, phenomenon, which Murray Rothbard, uh, among others, has called the old right, consisting of conservatives and classical liberals and others, uh, intellectuals as well as office holders, um, you know, in the sort of post-war and uh, even pre-World War II period, uh, consisting of critics of uh, an aggressive U.S. foreign policy or of a, a very interventionist U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And of course, World War II itself is kind of a flashpoint for this as well. And uh, it gets mixed in with many of the opponents of uh, the New Deal and of uh, FDR's domestic program as well. So there's a certain uh, shared genealogy between uh, some of the most uh, hardline non-interventionists uh, of the 20th century and uh, some of the conservatives who've been against uh, the sort of the New Deal welfare state from the beginning, and indeed uh, as libertarians have been as well. So there's this very interesting sort of um, 
uh, early uh, period, um, you know, in the early to middle 20th century, where the what becomes libertarianism and part of what becomes conservatism is very much mixed together uh, in opposition to Franklin Roosevelt, and then later on uh, having some skeptical views towards uh, the Cold War and towards um, you know the the idea that uh, you know the 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 U.S. is going to project the New Deal and later project the Great Society uh, into the rest of the world through the use of military force. And one of the critics, uh, one of the right wing criticisms of the Vietnam War, for example, made by people like Robert Nisbet, who was a you know an important uh, early uh, mid twentieth century uh, intellectual, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book called The Quest for Conservatism, uh, wrote a book called uh, Conservatism, Dream and Reality. Robert Nisbet was very critical of the idea that, uh, you know, the, the Vietnam War was a kind of extension of the American uh, welfare state and certainly the welfare state mentality to, uh, you know, the, the third world. Uh, Russell Kirk, the author of The Conservative Mind back in 1953, was also a critic of a, you know, sort of very uh, expansionist view of U.S. foreign policy. And, uh, and it's interesting, too, to look at how many um, post-war conservatives were really influenced in part by their horror at the dropping of the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. This was true of Richard Weaver, the author of Ideas of Consequences, as well as of Russell Kirk. Yeah, so that that is fascinating, and it's it's interesting because, as you say, at the time, I would say the people on let's call it the right, like in the in the 30s and 40s, they they were against FDR, obviously because of the New Deal and and all that stuff. But then also skeptical of, you know, why are we getting entangled in another European war? This is crazy, especially, you know, when it under dubious circumstances and, you know, like in other words, the U.S. is officially being neutral, but of course favoring the the allies and and so on, not really being neutral. Um, Whether or not one thinks FDR knew that the Japanese were headed towards Pearl Harbor, well, you know, there's various people who dabble in that kind of stuff. And yet at some point in terms of standard, like U.S. conservative Inc. or whatever you want to call it, it became, oh yeah, we don't like FDR's New Deal, but he was one of the greatest presidents because of what he did in leading us into World War II. And in fact, the U.S. participation in World War II has been elevated to like one of the crowning achievements of the U.S. state, even among people on the right. I don't remember who it was, but I remember it's at one point like the Republican running for president, maybe it was George W. Bush, I'm not sure. My memory's failing me, but when asked to list the greatest president, like I think put FDR at number one. And I just, you know. Yeah, even, even uh, Ronald Reagan had mm-hmm. done that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Reagan, of course, had started out as a New Deal Democrat and became a Republican uh, somewhat later into his career as he got into politics. Um, you know, as an actor, he had actually originally been uh, a Democrat. Um, you know, he'd been part of the Screen Actors Guild and so forth. Um, yeah, you know, there is this tendency uh, for something that becomes um, – institutionalized, like the U.S. Um, you know, sort of uh, military-industrial complex, for mm-hmm. lack of a better mm-hmm. word, which, of course, you know, was, was something that uh, was named by a Republican, was named right, by right. Dwight Eisenhower. Um, and Eisenhower was not, you know, a small government guy. He was actually uh, the great rival, and in some ways the, um, you know, conservatives were not happy when he won the Republican nomination in 1952 against Robert Taft, who was, again, the uh, more, you know, sort of conservative uh, traditional figure there. But um, no, I mean, there's a sense in which once these, um, you know, sort of institutions become, uh, you know, sort of set down in stone, uh, a number of people, and including a lot of conservatives, start to flock to them and become very mm-hmm. uh, supportive of them. World War II, I mean, that's, you know, a, a big issue that we can get into, you know, later on if we want to. Um, you know, there you've alluded to um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of um, evidence, a lot of you know, sort of theories that um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt may have had. Uh, he certainly knew in a general way that the actions he was taking with respect to Japan were going to provoke a powerful Japanese reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not he knew exactly that you know, there was going to be an attack uh, you know, on December 4th, that's a much more controversial question. But at this point, I think most historians agree that um, you know, FDR was definitely trying to lead America into uh, World War II, into both the Pacific theater and ultimately into the European theater as well. And, uh, and he was doing that using um, a lot of indirect means. Um, there's a book uh, published by John Mearsheimer, the foreign policy thinker, called Why Leaders Lie, uh, which talks a little bit about uh, this and about FDR. And he's defending that. He says, actually, you know, uh, there was a necessary uh, foreign policy objective to be secured in World War II, and therefore it was okay if FDR used the means at his disposal to sort of, you know, nudge the American people or deceive the American people into, um, into the conflict. And uh, But FDR today, you know, you have sort of back and forth. I mean, conservatives sometimes are accepting of at least the, F- the FDR-style uh, uh, New Deal, the, you know, sort of older elements of the welfare state, mm-hmm. the Social Security and so forth, uh, but they don't want to expand it further, at least so they say. And uh, other conservatives, however, are very critical also of uh, Social Security and would like to, you know, privatize it, which is itself kind of a, a problematic thing, right. as libertarians know, uh, or they would like to, you know, sort of move away from it if, if mm-hmm. that's possible. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, again, I do want to get into your specific post here, but just while I have you talking about these things, it occurred to me, I've never asked somebody, so that the term like paleoconservative or paleo, that, what is that, a prefix? Is that what that's called? Yeah, <laughs> the paleo, is that like, like there's, you know, paleolithic, does that, that means old as opposed yeah, to, I is mean, it the opposite of is, neo? So is it, yeah, was it, was so, the, were those terms chosen specifically to say we're the opposite of these neoconservatives? Exactly. Okay. So, um, you know, in the, uh, 19, late 1960s and 1970s, you had a number of um, you know liberal Democrats, many of whom had in fact uh, been Trotskyists in their college days or or even thereafter, mm-hmm. um, who you know for various reasons were unhappy with the direction of the Democratic Party uh, during the late 1960s with the Vietnam War protests and the civil rights protests. Then in 1972 with George McGovern. And so uh, over the course of the 1970s, these um, uh, disaffected Democrats uh, um, start moving into the Republican Party. And uh, many of them are intellectuals, and they become a cadre known as the neoconservatives. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, the Crystal family, uh, you know, led by Irving Crystal, the Podoretz family led by Norman Podoretz, and a number of others. And, and are well, uh, his son is, is Bill Crystal, right? Right. So Bill mm. Crystal is the son of Irving Crystal. Mm. So Bill Crystal is a second generation neoconservative. Right. Um, I don't even know if he would call himself a neoconservative. Well, he, the, the neoconservatives of the second generation tried to tried to call themselves just plain conservatives as right. a way of taking over right. the label. Mm. Uh, but at this point, Bill Crystal is so alienated from the Republican Party and from you know the conservative grassroots mm. and certainly from President Trump. But I don't even know if uh, Crystal would style himself as any kind of conservative uh, conservative at this point. Right. Um, he's maybe a, a paleo Marxist. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's a he's a wannabe like paleo revolutionary, a paleo Wilsonian uh-huh. or something. But anyway, so yeah, the term paleo conservative and, and paleo libertarian uh, sort of uh, in uh, conjunction with that uh, comes about in the late 1980s as a reaction to the movement of these uh, Democrats into uh, the conservative movement because uh, these. Uh, Democrats who had been very happy with FDR and even with, you know, much of the great society, um, they have a number of uh, conflicts with the older style of conservative. So Irving Kristol is quite critical 
of Barry Goldwater, for example. Mm-hmm. He's quite critical of, um, you know, sort of Southern conservatism. He's quite critical of uh, the old right and its sort of anti-government uh, or anti-statist uh, elements. Uh, he, you know, Irving Kristol's critical of libertarians. Um, and in general, Irving Kristol's trying to create um, – you know, a kind of more centrist in some ways, um, and one might say more left-wing in other ways, mm-hmm. uh, kind of conservatism uh, in the late 1970s and into the 1980s. And this triggers a, you know, sort of conflict with a number of older conservatives um, who then uh, decide that they want to have a new label for themselves to distinguish themselves from the neocons. Uh, and so they become paleoconservatives. And a number of libertarians who are unhappy with the libertarian movement at that time because they see uh, libertarianism as having degenerated into what was then called low-tax liberalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a number of um, libertarians uh, in the late 1980s uh, start to style themselves as – at least intermittently they call themselves paleo-libertarians to signal that they have some common ground with the paleo-conservatives, especially on foreign policy where they want the U.S. to adopt a much less uh, activist foreign policy. Um, whereas the neocons are very hawkish and very mm-hmm. you know, imperialistic even. Um, so that's, that's the origin of sort of the paleo uh, alliance or the paleo synthesis back in the late 80s and early 1990s. There's also, you know, um, the paleos are all um, somewhat critical of what uh, the paleo libertarians call managed trade and what the paleo conservatives, you know, um, denounce as kind of free trade overall with um, mm-hmm. NAFTA and things like that. Uh, Ron Paul and Pat Buchanan are both opposed to NAFTA, although they have somewhat different reasons for doing so. Sure. Yeah, I remember I got a, a mailer from the Mises Institute, and it was explaining what, like, would it have been the '80s or maybe the probably the no, it would have to be the '90s, talking about NAFTA and um and and why Murray Rothbard was against it. And I remember being shocked at first because like, aren't we for free trade? And then reading it and realizing, oh wait a minute, this is more, you know, there's, there's more nuance than I realized, um, as you say, because it's you don't need some huge thick document to say tariffs are zero. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, these documents are huge because they're full of regulations and in general, um, you know, Rothbard uh, was an advocate of unilateral free trade. He wasn't concerned about, you know, what other mm-hmm. countries might be doing. He said that, uh, you know, here's the best policy for the U S and it should be adopted. One more, if you don't mind, because you mentioned Pat Buchanan, am I right in saying he was interesting because, in terms of foreign policy, because he was definitely a Cold War hawk, you know, was w- with Nixon, and yeah, we gotta be tough with uh, the communists over there, not not let them keep taking over different countries. But yet, when the Soviet Union fell, then Pat Buchanan said, "Okay, now we can bring the troops home," because that was what we've been telling people for forty years, or whatever the timeline is. So, right, we're going to now not be so meddling around because, we, you know, we never claimed that we were being the world's policeman. It was just we had to stand up to communism. That's what we've been telling people, you know, on the right. And so he actually believed that and then saw that, oh, no, that's that's not the plan, Pat, and get in line or else get yeah, out. That's, that's exactly right. And in mm-hmm. fact, uh, in the forthcoming issue of Modern Age, the journal that I edit, uh, there's a great interview by Attila Sulker, who's a, uh, a libertarian, a young libertarian writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's interviewed Pat Buchanan, and, and Buchanan talks about this. Okay. And uh, it's great just to see the, the man talk about it in his own words and say, uh, you know, precisely what you just said, that um, at the end of the Cold War, uh, all the rationale for NATO and for uh, a very, you know, sort of um, a widely dispersed U.S. Uh, you know, military presence in the world – uh, went away. And so Pat Buchanan said there should have been a big change in our foreign policy and we should have brought home, uh, you know, our people at the end of the Cold War. That didn't happen. And of course, what actually happened was 
uh, not just the expansion of NATO, but also a series of new nation-building wars launched by the Bush family and by Bill Clinton and by Barack Obama as well, um, taking us into conflicts in you know Serbia and into Iraq uh, all around the place. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we now switch to the thing that I ostensibly asked you on to talk about? You had this post on Facebook recently, and I saw it and thought, let me get Dan on the show to talk about this. So let me I think the best thing to do, Dan, let me just read this thing. It's not too long, folks. And then Dan and I will discuss. So Dan says, few things are as ill-considered as conservative and libertarian contempt for democracy. The demos, is it demos or demos? Um, Either way. Okay. The, you can pronounce it in English however you please. <laughs> <laughs> Am I Greek? Demos not, is probably yeah, the, the best. Okay, yeah. the demos, so folks, is D-E-M-O-S. The demos is usually the least threatening element in a polity, the element that just wants to be free and unmolested. The elite elements practically by definition desire to dominate, politically, economically, culturally, and spiritually. Do conservatives and libertarians think the greater problem today is too little order, too much freedom, or too much domineering? Even the critics of freedom usually admit that society is indeed regimented by our elites, but regimented in ways that have nothing to do with virtue as traditionally understood. What's more, the safeguards against aggression by the demos are easy to maintain, and our Constitution has an excellent record in this regard. Yet those same safeguards restrict the power of the demos to check the abuses of the elite, and the elite are naturally much harder to restrain. The result, as most conservatives and libertarians recognize, is an increasingly irresponsible elite runs wild with the financial system, foreign policy, and political correctness. The elite has worked assiduously to co-opt democracy as a concept, and when the right plays along with this strategy, the effect is to leave the right with no support whatsoever. Not in the great elite institutions of the media, academy, political establishment, and corporate America, of course, but not with the demos either. The media-managed mass plebiscitary democracy that the elite promotes does not in fact have a better claim to the name than the fully popular constitutional system in which the demos is arranged in orders by state. Many on the right want to contrast democracy with the ideals of Platonism, medievalism, capitalism, or natural rights, but our constrained practical choice isn't between democracy and any of those. It's between constitutional democracy allied with the good but politically weak versus a deeply crazy oligarchy that uses or co-ops the language of democracy to preclude any popular challenge. Okay, discuss. Do you want to just elaborate on that? And then obviously I'll, uh, and as I said, just to tell the listeners, it's, when I, when I thought about it, it's like on the one, I'm, I'm very uh, torn. That on the one hand, I, I know exactly what you're saying and I totally agree with it, but then on the other hand, there's lots of other things. Like, Wait a minute, but what about this, this, and this? So, do you maybe just want to elaborate on that a bit and then and I'll raise some of the concerns I had? Yeah, I think the reason I wrote that up for Facebook was I was annoyed by a number of Facebook posts uh, by friends of mine, um, mm-hmm. some conservatives and maybe some libertarians as well, um, looking at and, – and these are, you know, sort of not uh, Bob Murphy, you know, sort of a narco-capitalist. These are, you know – um, the more conventional kind of conservative and libertarian. The fake um, libertarians. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the, the the minarchists or what have you, and uh, uh, and then on the on the conservative the, the people side, who you know, think coercion is only good on Tuesday. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and then and then the you know conservatives, um, traditional conservatives, you know people who who are not neocons, who are not you know just big statists, but who nonetheless um, you know for one reason or another, and I, I mentioned Plato there, and some of them consider themselves very big Platonists, mm-hmm. um, but for one reason or another, they look at uh, you know the imperfections of the political system right now, the political process right now, 
Uh, in particular, I think they were looking at, uh, you know, the Biden and Trump debates and saying that, well, isn't it terrible that we have these these two characters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with all of their personality issues and other issues, um, and both of them being very old, both of them being into their 70s. Uh, isn't it terrible that uh, these are the best two people that American democracy can produce as leaders? And these are the choices that people are left with. And then from there, the argument from these you know, folks on Facebook was, uh, well, this is obviously the fault of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the public is responsible for um, having this kind of uh, choice between you know, two candidates that uh, the people posting these comments were both very unhappy with. And um, yeah, I, I'd been re- reviewing quite a bit of uh, you know, sort of Plato and Aristotle and Machiavelli and others uh, over the past couple of weeks or, or even months. And uh, so I, I wanted to pick some uh, bones with uh, this uh, perspective, which I thought was rather um, sort of uh, unexamined uh, in its criticism of, well, in blaming the American public for uh, what these uh, characters saw as being a bad uh, turn in our politics. Um, no, I mean, so basically what I say in the, in the, the Facebook post there is, uh, is correct. I mean, the ordinary people, the broad public, the demos, Uh, are generally, relatively speaking, the passive element within any kind of social order or uh, political order. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the people are not the ones out there clamoring for things to be, you know, uh, dramatic forms of activism. For the most part, they want to be left alone to lead their own lives. The caveat to that, of course, is that, uh, you know, politicians and demagogues who come along can sometimes stir up the people into a, a mob or into, you know, some sort of organized political bloc. And take advantage of that. And that mm-hmm. when the people want to be left alone, part of that does mean that they also want to have uh, a degree of economic stability as well as being you know, not coerced. And uh, that, too, is, of course, something that uh, allows for uh, politicians to um, sort of direct the people to their own advantage. Um, but in general, the people are um, relatively, um, as I say, passive in the sense of not wanting to dominate. They just don't want to be tyrannized. They don't want to be dominated themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, almost by definition, as I say in the blog post, uh, people who are elite, uh, the few, uh, tend to be the ones who have uh, more um, of an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, not just the good entrepreneurial spirit in you know sort of business terms, but also mm-hmm. the bad entrepreneurial spirit in terms of wanting to uh, – you know, having designs to acquire power and to expand it mm-hmm. and to dominate other people, whether that's in your own country or, or abroad. So um, you know, most and I also, you know, I am someone who thinks that there's a lot of truth to uh, the Italian political theorist Robert Michael's view of uh, the iron law of oligarchy, that in fact, you know, most forms of government, uh, most forms of organization, in fact, ultimately are oligarchical. There is, you know, a, a certain number of people, it's kind of like the Pareto 80-20 rule, where mm-hmm. the number of people who uh, have the most sway in an organization uh, are uh, the relatively small number, the 20, and that the 80 are, you know, sort of going along or taking orders or, you know, implementing the ideas of the smaller active ruling cadre. Um, so, and we can get into the details of, of, you know, that part of elite theory if we want to later on. Um, you know, Pareto and Michaels and others are, have elaborated on that. Uh, but, I, but that actually, both Pareto and Michaels, I think, had uh, took some inspiration from Machiavelli, and certainly Pareto did. Um, and, you know, Machiavelli is, you have to read him carefully because he has, you know, a lot of interesting things that he says both in the, the prints and in the discourses. You have to read both of them together and kind of uh, also think about the sources that Machiavelli is using. 
Titus Livy, for example, the Roman historian, mm. and in fact, uh, Machiavelli is drawing upon a very large amount of classical literature in general and synthesizing I, a lot of I, I need to remind you, Daniel, that most people, if they know anything about Machiavelli, just know it's better to be feared than loved, and that's it. That's all he ever wrote. Uh, well, yeah, and he, you know, he did write that. So, uh, at least they know something. <laughs> That's a good place to begin. Um, you know, and most people think of Machiavelli, they just identify him with uh, The Prince, which is a very short book. Right, and it's a right. book where, you know, people think he's advising a, a tyrannical, you know, leader. That's why I said that, because it's, I think some people have never heard others, like, treat Machiavelli as if he's, like, if he's allowable. Like, no, he's supposed to be bad. Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, Machiavelli in The Prince, where he does, you know, talk about it's better to be feared than loved. Um, but he says, this, but by the way, he says it's better to be feared than loved, but you you must avoid being hated. So mm -hmm. that's kind of an interesting sort of qualification right, right. on uh, even that uh, element of him. Uh, but he has this other work, which is longer, called the uh, Discourses on the First Decade, the First Ten Books of Titus Livy. Uh, which um, it doesn't exactly contradict the Prince, but it says a lot of things. Uh, basically, the the um, uh, the discourses on Livy are talking about republics, just as the prince is talking about uh, princely rule, uh, mm -hmm. monarchy, basically. And so we put these two elements together. You've got an interesting question. Is Machiavelli, you know, sort of just dispassionately and scientifically talking about, well, here's how, you know, a, a prince rules. Here's how republics work. Is he, you know, sort of favoring one over the other? Is is the prince something he wrote just to try to get a job? And the, the discourses represents the real Machiavelli who likes mm -hmm. a, a good republic. Or is, um, are both works to be taken together and do they mm -hmm. kind of illuminate one another? Uh, and I tend to favor that, that, that last interpretation. Mm -hmm. I think actually Machiavelli wants a kind of um, a republic that has certain monarchical characteristics. And he says that if you're going to be a monarch, there are certain advantages a republic has that you should sort of uh, tap into. Mm -hmm. And um, there's – and Machiavelli, and he's, he's not alone in this because he's drawing upon a classical tradition which is often – not stated explicitly or very explicitly in works like uh, Titus Livy's History of Rome, but which um, is not really hidden either. It's just you have to know what you're looking at uh, when you when you see it. But there is this sense in which you know our um, you know sort of good nice American views about the difference between a republic and an empire are um, not quite uh, a correct fit for the Roman experience, and they may tell us something about. Um, uh, you know, sort of the modern experience as well. So um, the Roman Republic was actually very aggressive, very expansionist. And while it did have, you know, some element of self-government, it did have some element of democracy combined with oligarchy. That's what, you know, kind of made it a republic in the uh, the ancient uh, sense of the term. Uh, the, you know, sort of Roman Republic was very vigorous, uh, very expansionist. Um, it was not something libertarians would like. It's not something that most Americans would like. And Machiavelli, however, liked it. He liked it much better than he liked the Roman Empire, precisely for that reason. He thought that the Roman Republic had a vigor which the Roman Empire lacked, and that the Roman Empire lacks that vigor in part because it isn't a republic, and it isn't incorporating uh, or subordinating uh, you know, the, the people in a way that actually makes the people sort of actively engaged with the designs of the elite and the oligarchy. Um, so with the Roman Empire, because it becomes a monarchy, uh, the people become much more inert, and the oligarchy, the sort of um, elite elements, are generally um, uh, suppressed by either the, the emperor or by the military, which is a kind of independent uh, element within the constitution for Machiavelli uh, when speaking about Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, that is. And um, you, you might be, again, surprised because Machiavelli actually says, well, or at least implies 
that, uh, you know, when you get to the Roman Empire and the army becomes a force within the constitution unto itself, uh, and in fact, the dominant force, the dominant humor, as, as Machiavelli calls it, which is an interesting use of medical language, as it was in the mm-hmm. early modern period, this language of humors, this idea of, you know, there's, uh, there's blood and there's bile, there's yellow bile and black bile, and uh, I forget what the third bile um, uh, collar, uh, which is, mm-hmm. you know, and these, these, these humors, these biological substances, these, uh, within the body determine your temperament, uh, depending on what their mixture is. And one of the interesting things about Machiavelli is he uses this language to describe politics. And he's basically saying politics is a mixture of these different temperaments, as well as these different classes or groups of people, uh, you know, in, in, in a competition with one another that is oftentimes kind of advantageous for the state. The fact that they're competing with one another, just actually integrate them rather than to break them apart. But that's getting, you know, a bit far afield. Uh, what I was going to say, however, is once the humor of the military becomes dominant in the Roman Empire, Machiavelli actually sees that as being something that makes the empire less aggressive because the military at that point has power. It just kind of wants to, uh, you know, maintain itself as opposed to uh, actually go out there and uh, take risks by fighting and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, therefore, you know, risking losing uh, what it has. It becomes very um, sort of conservative in the bad sense of the term. It becomes uh, simply, uh, you know, uh, keen to keep what it possesses Mm -hmm. instead of having what Machiavelli admires, which is this kind of uh, what he calls virtue, virtue, but uh, nobody else would call it virtue because what it really means is uh, this kind of ambition to be uh, domineering and conquering. So Machiavelli, you know, really is um, in many ways as dark as his, his reputation would suggest. But um, at the same time as he's very dark, he is describing politics in a much more, again, nuanced and complicated way mm-hmm. than you might think just based on the reputation of the prince. And so there are things that Machiavelli describes and says, which actually libertarians and conservatives and others um, can, can uh, recognize as being correct. And even if Machiavelli doesn't necessarily value those things, the fact that he has brought them out and helped us to understand them can be very useful. And one of those elements being that uh, the people on their own are not uh, this uh, really aggressive element in the Constitution. It's rather usually the few, the oligarchs. Um, oligarchs here meaning just you know any kind of elite, any kind of people right, right. who are extremely ambitious and are capable of using other people to further their ambitions. Uh, those are the ones who are the active and uh, domineering element uh, within a constitution. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion for me to once again remind you that if you like what you hear, you like the guests that I bring on and the perspective I offer in the solo episodes, by all means, consider making a contribution. The more such contributions I get, the more episodes I can do per month just as a justification for using my scarce labor hours on this outlet that I love but yet does not fully pay the bills. And so I can only do it part-time thus far. For details on how you can do that and all the special bonuses, depending on your level of contribution, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Let me just mention, if you've made a qualifying contribution and you're supposed to get let into the Facebook secret group, shh, it's a secret. And it's been more than two weeks since you've made the contribution and I haven't gotten back to you. That means I somehow missed the note in my inbox. And so don't be shy. Please get in touch and just let me know. Uh, make sure that I get everybody in there who's supposed to be in there. Last thing I'll mention is whether you contribute or not, another way you can certainly help is subscribe to me on YouTube. And when you come across an episode that you realize some of your friends might be interested in or you know, a coworker, and I'm going to be trying to make more episodes that are catering to someone who's not a true believer, as it were, 
then sharing the episodes with people like that is another great way for me to get the podcast out in front of more people. Thanks everybody for your support and let's get back to the episode. Okay, let me try it this way. So I totally understand um, the appeal and I think Murray Rothbard even has written on why in terms of just strategy. So we're not talking about libertarian theory here, but just, you know, strategy, how are we going to get to a freer society where free is defined as, you know, greater respect for property rights? That's the way, you know, so a Rothbardian would think about it. Um, and he he advocated populism. And that's why a lot of people like associated with the Mises Institute now are either explicitly pro-Trump or at the very least say Trump is way better than, you know, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. And, you know, are really hoping that Trump gets reelected. So as we're recording this, folks, the election hasn't happened. But just so you know, Dan, our episode will drop after after the election, but perhaps not before we know who the next president is, right? <laughs> Um, so, so I, I get, I understand that, but yet at the same time, I was, I was touring, um, Eastern Europe. There was part of what's called the free market roadshow. Do you know about that, Dan? Have you heard of that thing? I think I've heard about it. I don't really know the details. Okay. Anyway, so it's group puts it on over there and, um, and Federico Fernandez, you know, he and I were both presenting. I think I think I can say this because he was giving a public presentation. I don't think he would mind me quoting him. Um, and he was getting, and so this was a few years ago. So Trump had won. At this, you know, Trump was the president, but um, and and Federico was warning people, saying he was very concerned about the resurgence of populism, you know, with Brexit and whatever. And the reason, and he pointed to like what happened in you know South American, Latin American countries, you know, when there was a populist uprising and dominate, you know, coming from the left and like having quote land reform, you know, and, and things like nationalizing industries and you know stealing property from people or what what have you. So tends to be going hand in hand with massive inflation, price controls and stuff to keep bread affordable for the people, that kind of stuff. So to him, that's that was the fear of populism. It it went hand in hand with terrible economic policy that on paper seems like it's good for the people when in fact it's not. Or then another, you know, another obvious example would be like what happened in the French Revolution. Like I think that's what a lot of people think of as, oh no, when when the public gets, you know, gets their dander up and just starts going nuts. Look what can happen. So, as are, do you disagree with that? Are you saying yes, there is that, but in practice, day to day, the more serious threat is coming from the the technocrats? Well, okay. So there's some uh, that raises a number of good and interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to the French Revolution, uh, the French Revolution was not led by the poor. Mm-hmm. It was led by basically the rising bourgeoisie. This is a very important element in Marx, by the way, that he's, you know, this is kind of where he draws his whole theory of revolution from. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the French Revolution, okay, so France in, you know, the late 18th century, it's uh, in theory an absolute monarchy. It's an absolute monarchy which has softened up a little bit uh, since the death of uh, Louis XIV. So by now you're on Louis XVI. Mm-hmm. And um, basically France has become somewhat more commercialized. And you do have a rising commercial element. And you also have, you know, um, a class of sort of lawyers out in the provinces and, you know, sort of other elements which are increasingly prosperous economically. But they have no share of political power because, again, you know, in theory, France is something of an absolute monarchy. You do have a, an, a landed aristocracy of a sort, but this landed aristocracy, as Tocqueville talks about in a wonderful little book called um, the, the Old Regime and the French Revolution, which people should definitely read as well as Democracy in America. But Tocqueville talks about how uh, the, the landed aristocracy, which used to provide at least a sense of noblesse oblige uh, within their areas, 
um, had sort of uh, been severed from any connection with the population in, in the localities. Uh, and what happened is basically these um, aristocrats, these local aristocrats, instead of having a connection to their estates, they basically became kind of absentee landlords. They moved to the cities. They, they were attracted to Paris. They wanted to hang out at the court. And so um, that element of sort of local aristocracy was uh, deficient or was removed in this French absolutist system. Power was theoretically being concentrated in the monarch, uh, but in fact, economic power and a lot of um, uh, sort of rising power within uh, France uh, was being was in the hands of um, you know sort of individuals engaged in in trade or in in the law. Um, and this element, uh, they are the ones who are represented in the third estate when the um, estates general meet. And the third estate, of course, takes over these other two estates, the other two estates being uh, the clergy and uh, um, the nobility. When they come together in the third estate, Louis XVI has called them together into basically uh, France in, you know, in the late 18th century doesn't have a standing parliament or a, a, a regularly sitting parliament like, uh, like Britain does. Instead, it has this, you know, sort of ancient institution of the estates general who only come together whenever the king summons them. And the king only summons them when he really needs money. And, uh, you know, Louis XVI in the late 18th century is hurting for money because um, he has uh, lost the Seven Years' War with England. And he's also put a lot of money into the American Revolution. So he calls yeah, the estates. That, that last element there, I wasn't on my radar because recently because of current events in the U.S., I was watching with my wife documentaries in the French Revolution. I didn't realize that element that part of why the king, the king of France was in such trouble is because he lent so much money to the Americans and, and their effort. Yeah, it's a great irony that, you know, uh, Louis XVI, who, who, you know, in theory is an absolute monarch, is the guy who, you know, saves the American Revolution. And in the, you know, the price he pays for saving the American Revolution is a revolution that chops off his head. So, um, yeah, history is full of uh, painful ironies like that. It's one reason why Machiavelli had such a cynical view as he became mm -hmm. a, you know, sort of analyst of history and of politics. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, so the French Revolution actually is, is, is more from this rising prosperous class who don't have political power. And they say, wait a minute, if we've got prosperity and we clearly are, they, they see themselves as being intellectually kind of superior. They're, they're, in, you know, informed by the Enlightenment. They read a lot of Voltaire. They read a lot of Rousseau. Uh, they read a lot of Diderot and all these others, the encyclopedists. Uh, so these, these rising bourgeois, they see themselves as, you know, quite intellectually um, advanced. And uh, they see themselves as prosperous, and that's you know a sign that they should have some amount of rule. They really like the British Constitution in theory, and they see that the British Constitution does allow for uh, you know the House of Commons to have much more power than uh, you know commoners have in France. So when Louis the Sixteenth brings together the Estates General, which is uh, the nobility and the clergy, and you know what in Britain would be called the Commons or the Third Estate. Um, this third estate, uh, the bourgeoisie, they take over the uh, estates general. They turn it into uh, what they call the National Assembly, into a, you know, basically a sovereign parliament, mm -hmm. a sovereign legislature. And uh, then they start dictating terms to the king, and the king realizes that he's kind of lost control of the constitution. There are a number of developments, uh, you know, but eventually relations between the National Assembly and the king uh, break down. Uh, the king and his family are arrested. Uh, at first, you know, the idea isn't that the National Assembly wants to execute the king, but rather they want to create a constitutional monarchy. So they're trying to write a new constitution. Then there are a lot of uh, different factions competing within the legislature. And eventually uh, this Jacobin faction, this very radical, uh, you know, um, 
you know, Republican and but also very bloodthirsty and sort of ultra rationalist and, you know, basically, you know, hyper deist or quasi atheist element, uh, the Jacobins wind up becoming dominant and then they uh, institute a reign of terror. Um, so I would not say that the French Revolution is an example of the population, the, the demos, becoming uh, assertive and uh, destroying the constitution or, you know, plunging the country into bloodshed. It's actually this ambitious elite who have economic um, wealth, but who don't have any respect or dignity or power within the constitution, who uh, say, well, we need to have power, so we're going to seize it. Uh, they're the element that, that uh, you know, sort of drives the French Revolution. And, uh, and that shows, by the way, how, you know, an elite which may start out as, you know, sort of intellectual and economic might decide that, well, you know, if we're, if we're clearly superior to these other elements in the Constitution in these um, non-coercive ways, then maybe we should be the ones who have coercive power as well. Why should that be in the hands of the king uh, or theoretically in the hands of, you know, the, the lower people or something like that? The French Revolution, you know, as it goes on, um, it undergoes a lot of changes. And eventually, by the time you get to Napoleon, you get to Napoleon as, you know, um, one of the consuls that they create, and then eventually he becomes emperor. Um, Napoleon does institute a kind of uh, Caesarism where there's a relationship between the mass public and the, the, the emperor, basically. Um, and that, of course, really is a pretty strong parallel to what we see happening at the end of the Roman Republic, where, you know, Julius Caesar um, becomes, uh, Julius Caesar is, of course, um, he's, in Rome, you have these two factions, the uh, popularists and the, the optim, optimates, uh, and uh, Julius Caesar is actually on the more popularist side of, of that um, argument. So one side, uh, the optimates are on the, they're on the side of um, the privileges of the Senate, and they want to maintain, they're the more conservative element, they want to maintain the old Roman constitution. And the uh, popularists, people like uh, Caesar, are in favor of, um, you know, sort of land reform, just as you'd mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. They're in favor of basically rewarding the veterans of the Roman uh, uh, army and of, the, of Rome's many wars with more land uh, taken from conquest or, um, you know, sort of reapportioned from uh, from earlier conquests, from the rich to uh, the, the, the military and to uh, the people in general. And of course, um, in the process of that, you also have these very rich uh, Roman leaders, people like Caesar, um, putting on, uh, you know, big uh, public festivities, banquets, you know, handing out um, basically a, a sort of private welfare system where they are, you know, personally sponsoring um, meals and uh, games and other things for uh, Rome's poorer citizens. And in doing that, uh, these, you know, generals like Caesar are able to um, subvert the constitution. They basically take advantage of the weakness of the people, the fact that people are very needy and, and need economic support and want economic support. Uh, and uh, someone like Caesar takes advantage of that. He combines that with military strength and he gets to a point where he can overawe the Senate. And the Senate, of course, decides, well, we don't like this. So they assassinate Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. And that plunges Rome into yet another cycle of civil wars, which ultimately leads to um, you know, Caesar's nephew, um, Octavian, who becomes uh, the Emperor Augustus, to, um, you know, sort of, well, institute the Roman Empire. And that's a long story, too, of course. But um, so the, the, even with the Roman example, the driving element there, the people play a role, and it is a role in the destruction of the Constitution. But it's a role that um, where the active element, the seduction, is carried out by people like Caesar, who are going out there 
And uh, it's not upright rising from the people themselves. It's rather that there are these leaders who say, aha, the people are weak. They don't, they feel, you know, oppressed by the, the Senate and by the Senate's, um, uh, you know, sort of um, wealthy elements. Mm-hmm. And so I, as a general and I, as a wealthy Roman, can go directly to the people and say, I will support you because the Senate isn't doing enough for you. And therefore, you should support me. And m- maybe in the process, I will overthrow the Senate. Now, in Latin America, I think you sometimes see um, a very similar thing happen there as well. Um, so someone like, um, you know, Chavez and Maduro, um, clearly they are, you know, a kind of, um, they're not just a spontaneous manifestation of the people. They really are, you know, sort of a, uh, a, an agitating left-wing cadre of their own. And, of course, this is sort of the role that Lenin perceives left-wing parties, communist parties, basically, as having. Uh, so with the Russian Revolution, it's also quite similar. Uh, most of the Russian revolutionaries are not the poorest people. They rather see themselves as this, you know, sort of incipient middle class that um, should have um, a role as a vanguard in bringing about the, the, you know, not only the end of the Tsardom, but also, uh, you know, finally the transformation of Russia and then the rest of the world into a proletarian state. But before you get to the proletarian state, I mean, it's in for Lenin, it's not the people who kind of liberate themselves necessarily. It's rather this revolutionary cadre, this special class who are intellectually more advanced because they've read Marx mm-hmm. and who are also the vanguard of history. And, you know, here they're drawing on, you know, some Hegelian ideas that are also in Marx. This idea that you need, um, just as uh, Hegel thought that Napoleon was kind of history made manifest and was a, a, an individual who was personally driving history forward, uh, for Lenin, the party is a institution that is, uh, you know, not personally, but as a an institution or as an institutional person is driving history forward. And you can't rely on the, the proletariat to liberate themselves. You have to have this revolutionary cadre. And most of the time in Latin America, I think that's what you see. You don't see just ordinary peasant rebellions. You actually see rebellions that are ginned up. I mean, in Latin America, a lot of times, you know, it's, it's, it is just as in America, it's academics. Um, a friend of mine, in fact, um, uh, well, I, I won't, I don't know how public his experience is, but a friend of mine was uh, in Latin America recently, and uh, he uh, was was teaching there. He was, you know, a free market um, economist. And, uh, you know, as he was uh, going uh, back to the airport to come back to the United States, there was basically, uh, you know, a left-wing protest that he got caught in the middle of. And it was, you know, sort of uh, not quite a revolutionary situation, but something that was pretty hair-raising. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he noticed that, like, you know, a lot of the, the slogans and other things that were being written were these crazy sort of American-style far-left identity politics slogans, like end the heteropatriarchy and stuff like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. So even though you would think that these Latin American revolutions are meant to be, you know, sort of peasants and just people who are economically unhappy and who want, uh, you know, uh, sort of free bread or whatever, uh, in fact, a lot of it also there is driven by academics and by students and by revolutionary cadres, whether they're organized as a communist party or something that's equivalent to a communist party. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who are actively subverting and trying to overthrow the constitution and who are taking advantage of the stupidity of the ruling class in a lot of these places. Because what you find when you get to these revolutionary situations is that the ruling elite, the wealthy and um, you know whoever has political power, they have neglected... Um, the need to cultivate legitimacy among the people. 
And so if the people become alienated and they think all the wealth is always going to go to the 1% or whatever, then the people become, uh, well, they cease to have loyalty to the Constitution. They cease to care about it. They say, what do I care if communists take over instead of having Wall Street rule the place? Right. You know, same difference to me because I'm going to be poor either way. And, you know, maybe if things change, maybe I won't be poor, but who knows? I won't be much worse off than I am right now. Um, so when the people become disillusioned with uh, the legitimacy of the republic, that's when uh, you have the conditions where, you know, a communist vanguard or an ambitious general or someone uh, can then foment a revolution and you get to one of these horrible situations. Now, is the Trump phenomenon in America uh, a parallel for that? Uh, I don't think it's a parallel at all. I think actually what what Trump represents is someone who is challenging America's political elites and America's, you know, academic elites and a lot of these, mm-hmm. um, I mean, basically the power structure throughout the country, in the media, mm-hmm. in the academy, in the uh, intelligence community, as they call it, right? Trump's gone after mm-hmm. them. Uh, Trump, uh, you know, doesn't like uh, the administrative state all that much. Um, Trump is someone who's actually restoring our constitution precisely by taking on these oligarchical elements, which have been, you know, seducing the public, perverting the people and, uh, damaging our constitution and leading it into, you know, a very, a much more coercive and a much more exploitative uh, kind of system. So Trump himself may not be a libertarian, but he actually has a very significant libertarian effect simply by taking on the most corrupt and the most uh, dangerous elements in our constitution right now, which are these unaccountable elites as opposed to the mass people. Mm-hmm. By the way, Dan, can we go on like another 15 minutes or so? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, because I had earlier signaled, but you're more interesting than I anticipated. That's a joke. It's because we, we, we burned so much time on the front well, of talking about, about so, happy and, Canada and I and rambled about yeah. Okay, well, no, that's but I just wanted to say that we had come to the time I had originally scheduled you for. Okay, so th- this is great stuff. And so this, again, it, it's not even that I know what the answer is or even if there is one, it's just, but I'm concerned. I could see someone listening to you saying, wait a minute, you're just doing a no true Scotsman fallacy or, or move. Are you basically, the way you got rid of like, oh, you know, Dan McCarthy's for populism. Murphy brings up a bunch of, you know, what are normally considered populist uprisings that clearly are bad. And you're just defying, well, no, because elites run them. So like, are you saying any bad populism is really not true populism because actually you can always find there were elites running it and couldn't we do that with anything? Or are you saying, no, for example, the Trump phenomenon is a counterexample. Clearly there weren't a bunch of elites working with him at, to, to get him into power. And, you know, so th- that's, that shows that you're not just yeah. defining away any, any awkward counterexamples. Well, you know, a, a true Scotsman fallacy, I think is generally um, concerned about a label. You have, you know, mm-hmm. if you take the Scotsman element out of the true Scotsman fallacy, right. then you don't have quite the same thing. Um, so I don't care whether you call this, you know, populism or democracy or whatever. Um, rather, it's the, you know, it's it's the fundamental relationship between these different elements in a society that I think is the key question. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's not that the the people are angelic or anything like that. It's rather that they're just not, you know, m- masses do not spontaneously organize themselves usually. Now sometimes, you know, you do have, you know, a um, uh, and when I say masses, you know, I mean there's sort of two different elements here where, you know, you can have a spontaneous demonstration where you have crowds, you know, come out and, you know, they're unhappy about a police shooting or they're unhappy about something else. Maybe it turns into a riot. Um, But that's not quite the same thing as, you know, a whole mass public uh, spontaneously uh, deciding to have a revolution or something. Normally what you get is that there actually are these revolutionary elements, these cadres and vanguards, which are doing a lot to foment things. And usually they are 
not representative of the poor people. They're actually representative of a rather rising element of, you know, maybe they're wealthy or maybe they're educated, but they are distinguished as a few compared to the many who are um, not at that level. Now, again, there, you know, if you look at people like Pareto and, and uh, Roberto Michaels, there is this idea of an iron law of oligarchy, which would say, yeah, all institutions, you know, are, are run by a small group of people. They're not run by, you know, the large number. They're actually run by, you know, the um, the most competent and the most active element within them. Um, and there's an element of truth to that. So, but but it's just a way of saying, but that too is a way of saying that, um, you know, again, the 80%, the broad public is generally not the thing that's driving the action. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's there. It's something you can be taken advantage of. It has its vices as well as its virtues. Um, but in terms of the really aggressive, ambitious element, and even in terms of human personality, I mean, the number of people who are truly ambitious and who want to rule other people and dominate and build things, you know, whether they're building something good or bad, uh, that personality type tends to be relatively rare. Most people are not entrepreneurial. And this is something I think libertarians have a bit of a, uh, a problem with because a lot of libertarians kind of want the entrepreneur as the ideal human type to be something that everyone exhibits. But most people actually want, you know, a degree of security. They want, you know, to be left alone. They don't want to be ordered around. They don't want to be dominated. But at the same time, they also want to be comfortable. And that's kind of, you know, what most ordinary folks have, you know, as their default uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. Whereas the people who have, you know, more entrepreneurial urges for the good or for the, the less good or for the evil even, uh, those tend to be a rather smaller uh, number of people, a personality type that's much more unusual. And they're the ones who tend to do both the very good things in society and also the very bad things in society. Okay, let me try to distinguish what your position is. On the one hand, I you could be taken to be saying, if you just really did a straight up like poll of the people, especially like if you gave some time for various contributors to get up and, and say some things to try to give them information or to steer them, and then just had a poll like, should we go, should we bomb Iran? Yes or no? You know, they, that even though they would disagree that, you know, the public will is not good, you know, it's not that the people are wise and benevolent all the time and virtuous, but that would actually be better in practice than the current system where the elites kind of run the show and the people are just, you know, we check in with them every four years and there's, you know, they don't really have much influence on what happens. They pick among the two candidates that are basically the same thing normally until Trump came along. There's that element. Or are you just saying, oh no, the people often do pick horrible things and they do go along with, you know, George W. Bush and the neocons whipped them up into after 9-11. They did want to go invade Iraq. That wasn't against the people's will. They were for it. They were lied to and blah, 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 but still they should have known better. But your point is the people only do something really bad when the elites mislead them. So do you see the distinction I'm drawing? Which Um, is close to what you're arguing. The, well, in something like the Iraq war, clearly, you know, it is the neocons and um, George W. Bush who come up with the plan. They come up with a, you know, a way of uh, sort of frightening the people, and they take advantage of the fact that people are already frightened after 9-11 to, um, you know, create uh, public support for the war. What you tend to find with America's wars is that almost all of them are popular when they start. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of, you know, after 18 months or so, they start to lose popularity steadily. This is even true, I think, with respect to World War II. It's certainly true with respect to the Vietnam War, to Korea, and to uh, our more recent wars. Um, and I would say that that actually, you know, sort of supports the claim I'm making here. The public can certainly be riled up, you know, they can be driven to war, 
Uh, but generally, the people are, first of all, not the ones clamoring for war. It's not like they're getting into the streets and saying, we need to bomb Iraq right now. We need to bomb Iran right now. Mm-hmm. We need to you know, invade this or that. Um, it's always got to be someone going out there and telling them, oh, why, did you know the Iranians are going to kill you? Mm-hmm. Did you know the Iraqis are going to you know, sort of nuke the country? What are we going to do about that? Hey, why don't we go to war with them? And then people say, yeah, let's go to war. Mm-hmm. So you know, again, it's, it's a question of who's, who's pulling the trigger and who's loading the gun. It's almost always the elites who are doing so. It's not that the public can never, ever, you know, do something crazy spontaneously. Maybe it can, but it's generally not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not in the nature of a broad public to do that kind of thing spontaneously. Normally, it is something that an elite uh, cooks up. But an elite is able to then uh, get the people to uh, be riled up and to support something, you know, like a, a war. But then the people tend to revert to their, you know, sort of typical character of not wanting to be dominated and not wanting to be pushed around and not wanting to be um, sort of pawns in someone else's game. And uh, as a war goes on for more than 18 months or so, the public starts to realize, wait a minute, what the hell are we getting out of this war? Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems to be something that, you know, the neocons and the ideologues and, you know, maybe the generals, they're all pretty happy with the war and they're happy to stay in Afghanistan for 20 years. But the people in general, especially the ones who actually have to fight the war because they're, you know, it's not the generals or the, the neocons who are going out the battlefield. Right. Uh, the people start to, you know, sort of uh, become, well, they become very open to the message of Ron Paul back in 2008, mm-hmm. 2012. And then they become very open to the message of, uh, uh, well, Barack Obama in 2008, who ran as an anti-war guy. And, uh, of course, the message of uh, Donald Trump as well and saying that he's going to end these endless wars. Um, so, and, and uh, as far as, um, you know, sort of democracy goes, another sort of element, which I think Murray Rothbard was, was three quarters correct about, um, Rothbard, of course, preferred the Articles of Confederation to the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. Now, I actually somewhat disagree with Rothbard here. Uh, I, actually, I think the Articles of Confederation allowed for too much democracy, and I like the fact that uh, the U.S. Constitution reined it in a little bit. But if you're, um, the democracy that Rothbard preferred, to the extent you're going to have that under the Articles of Confederation, is precisely this kind of local self-government. Uh, Rothbard was very skeptical of expanding this to a national scale. And my own view, you know, I prefer uh, republicanism and the kind of carefully modulated constitution that uh, people like Madison uh, devised um, for reasons we can get into in a moment. However, local democracy, even in a a kind of Madisonian uh, constitution, is very important. And, you know, it's proper that people should have, um, you know, a say over their own lives. And um, to the extent that you, you know, have a state, uh, if you keep government rather localized, you allow people to have uh, a say in their own lives based on their own contexts. And, you know, for the Roth- for Rothbardian reasons, as much as others, there's an advantage to localism over a very extended system in which people, uh, in which politics becomes abstract and the masses no longer are exhibiting self-rule because they're not, you know, thinking about their own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They're either thinking about these very abstract, large-scale issues where they're much more easily manipulated by um, by ideologues and by people who um, are intellectuals and know how to um, deal with abstractions, whereas most people are dealing with just you know sort of local realities. Am I better off now than I was four years ago? You know, uh, am I um, upset about the stoplight that's just been put on my street or whatever? Those very concrete local concerns uh, tend to be lost when you get to a large you know a, a plebiscitary democracy uh, at the national scale. Madison, you know, tried to do something very complicated, and I think he partially succeeded, where on the one hand, he wanted national scale institutions to prevent local democracy, local, you know, self-government from tyrannizing local minorities. 
especially uh, local um, creditors mm-hmm. uh, who were, you know, uh, creditors are few in number, debtors are many in number. If you have a democracy and you have this relationship between creditors and debtors, what happens? Well, the debtors have the numbers, therefore they can directly uh, expropriate or, you know, mm-hmm. change the, the, the deal uh, to benefit uh, themselves and to defraud the creditors. Um, so Madison and many of the founding fathers were very worried about this. They liked the fact that having a, a large-scale national system kind of diluted uh, the ability of uh, debtors to organize and, you know, sort of expropriate their creditors, and it maybe gave the creditors some, you know, sort of counterbalances. But, of course, the Madisonian system, you know, even the Constitution we got was not what Madison wanted exactly, and what we have today is rather different from what the Constitution was back in, uh, you know, the late 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. So, but, but this is the nature of, you know, sort of political reality where you always have um, some degree of drift away from constitutional intentions and origins. And you have to be prepared to deal with uh, things as they actually exist and not simply, mm-hmm. um, you know, assert, uh, you know, the history of what they were 200 years ago. And that's not, you know, accepting all the changes. It's rather the opposite. It's saying these changes have taken place. How do these changes like the New Deal and the Great Society, how have they corrupted things such that we now have to take certain actions in order to uncorrupt them? Uh, Trump is, you know, sort of a, a different question from all that, of course. Um, you know, the kinds of elites that he's uh, confronting are the elites in the, you know, sort of intelligence community, in the military industrial complex, in, um, uh, you know, elements of, you know, the bureaucracy and in, uh, you know, the academy and the media, which are very important, by the way, because the academy and the media, you know, it's very easy, I think, for libertarians to say, well, these are non-coercive institutions, you know, so why, mm. why worry about the media? Why worry about the academy? Now, the academy is getting government money most of the time, but let's mm. put that to the side for the moment. Um, but of course, you know, we've talked about how you need a kind of, you in most revolutionary situations and in a lot of, you know, situations like the Iraq war, you need an elite that's able to convince the people um, to do something crazy or to support something crazy. And what is the medium by which the people are convinced to support something crazy? Well, it's precisely that, the media. Right. And, um, and of course, you know, you look at what the media did during the Iraq war. It was very much uh, quite hawkish and was supporting. And they trot um, out experts. So that's important. Oh, absolutely right. Yeah. And of course, the media, so the, the experts are themselves, of course, credentialed by the academy most of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the media are much better educated than the people at large. The media are, of course, educated by the academy. So all of these things tend to fit together and, you know, sort of, again, form this um, de facto oligarchy. It's not necessarily an oligarchy in the sense of, you know, a a landed aristocracy or, Mm -hmm. you know, a plutocracy of just, you know, really rich oil barons or something. No, the the kind of uh, oligarchy we have is partly an educational oligarchy. It's partly a political oligarchy, a political class that is distinct. Uh, and then, it, but it does, you know, sort of intersect with um, banking interests and Wall Street and so forth. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me ask you. I, I think I have a good example to illustrate this divide, and I'm just curious where you come down on it. So it comes the, the, what the, the modern greenbacker movement. So the idea is, you know, they'll say to people, so they're com- coming from the left, and they'll say to you know the people, do you know the Federal Reserve is a privately owned institution? Do you know that it's not an arm of the government? It's a private bank. It's paying dividends to the bank, you know, shareholders who own it, and it's unaccountable. In fact, in uh, late 2008, Congress called Bernanke before them to say, "We see you're doing all these unprecedented loan programs, you know, to to help the housing market and blah 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 and liquidity. You can do what you want, of course. You're the Fed chair, and you're the Fed. You're independent, but can you just let us know who are you giving all these billions of dollars in loans to? 
just so we know. And Bernanke said to them, no, if I were to disclose the recipients of these programs, that would defeat the whole purpose because then investors would know these mm -hmm. banks were in trouble and they'd have a run on them. So no. So not only was Bernanke or you know the, the Fed under Bernanke's leadership giving out billions of dollars to people in these loans, he we didn't even know who it was. And, and even Congress didn't know. Okay. And so the greenbacker says, let's get rid of the middleman. Let's just have the ability to create new US dollars, legal tender, you know, go back to the treasury. Let's let the government do that direct, cut out the middleman, and then we'll, you know, print money for the people. Look at how we could afford all these programs. And, you know, now it's this crazy system where Uncle Sam, if he has to borrow money that the Fed creates out of thin air, and then we have to tax people to pay interest on this debt that the Federal Reserve... That's crazy. Let's do it. Okay. And so then the a lot of people on the right react to that and say, are you out of your mind? You want to let Nancy Pelosi be in charge of monetary policy? Can you imagine how much inflation we're getting? No, it's good right now. We've got these technocrats that, yeah, Ben Bernanke and Jay Powell. Well, Jay Powell is actually interesting because he's not really an academic. But up till then, you know, no, we've, we've got the, the smartest guys in the room, the college professors that, that have taken macro and taught at, at institute published in peer-reviewed journals, so you know it's it's accurate and scientific. They're the ones in charge of monetary policy, and that's how you want to do it. Look at all the gains we've made with the great moderation. You know, come on. We, we, the Jackson Hole Conference, that's the collection of the finest minds on the planet when it comes to monetary policy. This is great stuff. This is an area where, yeah, the elites are in, just like, you know, you got to get heart surgery. Do you want Joe the plumber doing it, or do you want a guy who's actually been to medical school? Give me a break. This anti-intellectualism is making me sick. So, Discuss. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and this is in, in some ways a, a debate that's taking place at the elite level. What, mm -hmm. what the, the public knows about monetary policy is they know that, first of all, they're not getting any interest on, you know, their savings if they have any savings. Um, you know, they know that they're getting screwed in many ways, but they, they don't really, they can't maybe articulate how they're getting screwed. They just know that something about the economic system seems to be putting a lot of pressure on them. And that they they feel uncomfortable and they're unhappy about that. And um, you know the intricacies of monetary policy are something that very few people are going to engage in. Um, so the the public has this discontent with monetary policy, mm -hmm. and um, politicians and activists who you know are the modern greenbackers and who say, well, we should take this away from the Federal Reserve and put it into uh, Congress. Uh, they are looking at that uh, discontent among the people. And they're saying, well, here's something which can remedy that discontent, perhaps, to some degree. Um, and also, here's something which can show that Congress really does represent, or at least, you know, can claim to represent uh, the public's interest. And that uh, instead of the people simply feeling alienated from the whole system, because what the hell are the bums in Congress doing if our monetary policy is controlled by this, you know, uh, secretive institution in the, the Federal Reserve? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why do we have how can you call that self-government if this if, if our money, something as fundamental as, you know, the, the, our bank accounts mm -hmm. are, you know, at the, you know, um, under the sway of this, you know, unaccountable institution, the Federal Reserve, or minimally accountable institution, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the accountable representatives who at least have to face us in, a, in an election. I mean, Congress may not be, you know, ideally representative either, mm -hmm. but at least there are certain ways in which you can, you know, put pressure on Congress, but you can't really put pressure on the Federal Reserve. So, you know, the politicians who might support this modern greenbacker movement um, would see this as a way of uh, not just addressing some popular concerns, but also as a way of strengthening their own institution and their own sort of position in the Constitution, a way of showing that um, 
you know, that they should have a connection to the people and to something as important to the people as the stability of the money supply or the, the value of the money supply. Um, and that, you know, moving this power from the unaccountable and illegitimate institution like the Federal Reserve and putting it into a more legitimate and more accountable institution like Congress would be beneficial because, you know, that will not only maybe be good for monetary policy, but it'll also be good in terms of uh, the constitutional order that people would then have an interaction with Congress instead of having uh, no interaction with the Federal Reserve and, you know, having this sort of uh, secondary monetary constitution that's separate from mm -hmm. the political constitution we have. Um, now, the intricacies of the monetary policy there, I mean, there obviously is, the Federal Reserve is terrible, and the alternatives to the Federal Reserve are often quite terrible as well, especially if it becomes political control under Nancy Pelosi. Um, so I'd be cautious about that. But at the same time, I mean, the, fundam the fundamental critique is sort of correct. Now, it does lead into this problem where banking in general, and you know this with fractional reserve banking and everything else, um, is something that has an enormous effect on the fortunes of every you know person in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is something which, you know, politicians and technocrats um, can't really micromanage. But it's also something where uh, the banks left to their own devices um, tend to run wild and, and create some problems them themselves. So it is one of the fundamental, you know, sort of tensions and difficulties in our country. And uh, that's why it's recurrent, I think. It's why you see, you know, every 20 or 30 years, there's going to be a new movement that arises that starts addressing this in one way or another, mm -hmm. whether it's Ron Paul talking about the Federal Reserve or whether it's, you know, the Greenbackers of the 19th century talking about how they wanted to, um, you know, um, have bimetallism or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the Greenbackers weren't for bimetallism, but the bimetallists were for bimetallism. <laughs> right, right. You know, all these monetary, you know, mm -hmm. theories, some of which are cranks and some of which are are, are solid. Uh, but it's something where, where banking is so, so um, basic, not only to the economy, but to just ordinary life, that it becomes uh, a big political question. And in a country like our own, where you do have, you know, a state that is, uh, you know, has this popular element, and you do have these uh, questions of, you know, early on we talked about how the, the revolutionary and, you know, uh, the, under the Articles of Confederation, there was this tension between debtors and creditors. Well, obviously, monetary policy is kind of that mm -hmm. on an even larger scale. Right, right. So it's, I think it's a fundamental and almost unresolvable problem in, you know, our political system and our economic system and how they interact together. Um, however, I do think there is some benefit in at least clarifying for the wide public, you know, that these issues are out there and they need to be thinking about them. And some degree of political uh, influence on these questions is necessary. And the Federal Reserve has been, you know, sort of too mysterious and too unaccountable for too long. And so it's certainly appropriate if Congress is saying, you have to tell us, you know, uh, where this money is being spent and what these numbers are. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to assert full control over the Fed, but it does mean you're at least going to start a conversation about what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I forgot. I meant to lay out like a, a three-part or a three-fold type of reaction. And it sounds like you just hit that where, so yes, there's the, the typical greenbacker, then like the, like the elitist right-wing criticism of that with respect to the, the Federal Reserve. And then there's also the more, I guess, nuanced or uh, fatalistic right-wing thing to say, yes, obviously Nancy Pelosi running monetary policy sounds like a disaster. But as you said, Dan, at least it would be more transparent. And at least then when there was price inflation, everybody would know where to put the blame or mm -hmm. be more, they'd be more likely. And technically you could vote the people out. 
and and so you know so it's in other words it's not that right now the government doesn't control the money it does but it's through this convoluted mysterious system where the actual policy is driven by this handful of unaccountable people and so you know so there there is that element as well it sounds like that's kind of close to what you're saying let me let me end with one one last example and to get your view on so it's it's interesting this i'm sure you've noticed this the way people nowadays use the term democracy all it means is a government that i like and so, for example, if Trump came out and said, you know what, CNN just keeps running all these fake news articles, we're shutting down CNN. You know, we're going to take its main, you know, people and we're going to put them, we're going to prosecute them for libel and, you know, we're going to put these people. And suppose 60% of the public agreed with that. I guarantee you all of Trump's critics would say this is the most horrendous violation of democracy in U.S. history, that he's imprisoning people who work for CNN. But if by stipulation in this example... 60% of the public was for it, that would be democratic. The people are for it. You know, he's doing, and so there is this weird thing where would, by democracy, they don't mean what the people want. They mean what we think a good government does and freedom of the press is a staple of a good government. So therefore that would be undemocratic to, to lock up journalists, re, you know, regardless of what the people want. So in more generally, like when Trump calls fake news and, you know, attacks the press and whatever, he's at these rallies and go, oh, look at the fake news out there. Come on, you know, give him a hand. And people get all nervous about, oh my gosh, he's assaulting the institutions of a free society. Are you, what's your take? Like, do you think that's hilarious? And like, yeah, the people harming the country for the last 40 years have been the media and I'm glad someone's calling them out. Or do you understand why the leftist critics of Trump are so concerned about, this is not a good precedent if the president's vilifying the press. Okay, so um, two things. First, I want to go back to uh, what you'd said earlier about monetary uh, policy. Mm -hmm. And I just want to, um, you know, as kind of an, overall statement, the art of having a republic means you have to reconcile these popular and elite elements. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep them, you know, in some sort of relationship that uh, maintains the constitution as opposed to something that either goes uh, in one direction, which is probably not towards a kind of pure, you know, sort of direct democracy, but is rather going to be towards um, some sort of popular dictatorship, which is, you know, Caesarism, basically. That's one mm -hmm. way in which a, you know, republic like ours might collapse. But then the other uh, danger in a republic like ours is basically consolidation of oligarchical power. And you can actually find a number of, you know, Greek city-states where you did have democracy or, uh, you know, Renaissance uh, city-states where, you know, you had at one time uh, democracy of a more or less direct kind, but sometimes not totally direct, uh, that then becomes uh, corrupted and taken over by an actual oligarchy. Uh, so that's a, something that is, you know, relatively common in history. And in America, you know, in the modern world, things are much more sophisticated and complicated and on a larger scale. But those fundamental um, uh, forms of degeneration of a Republican constitution are probably still the possibilities we're looking at. So you can have a constitution that collapses because it becomes a Caesarist dictatorship, uh, and you can have one that collapses because it becomes, um, you know, basically an oligarchy and subverted mm -hmm. by uh, the elite. Um, regarding Trump and his attacks on the media, um, you know, first of all, I, you know, you're right. The word democracy gets used in, and abused in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the interesting ways in which it is abused right now is that um, the elite has redefined democracy to mean whatever it likes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see this in the media, you see this especially in the academy. Democracy doesn't even mean whatever the people want, you know, mm -hmm. as, a, as a number of voters or as, you know, as a whole. It instead means whatever, you know, the elite deems is good. 
So, you know, um, and what they've done is they've, they've thrown out, you know, you know, liberalism is a term that many of them are, are shy about using. And, you know, in, in sort of common political parlance, these, you know, elites are often called liberals. But of course, they're not classical liberals. And they're not people who are reading, you know, uh, Hayek and uh, certainly not Mises. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, you know, they've, they've thrown out the idea of liberalism. And now they want to use the word democracy to mean whatever nice, you know, rights of the press or whatever um, they claim to be defending. Um, and they do this in part because they want to make a legitimacy claim. They don't want to talk about rights. They don't want to talk about, you know, these more theoretical ideas. They rather want to say to the people, well, you can't criticize us because we actually are democracy. And the, the large number of you who don't like us, oh, you're not the Dem- Democrats. You're actually right. anti-democratic in some way. Mm-hmm. So they've introduced that element of confusion. Basically, democracy has become a label that oligarchs are very uh, adept at using at this point. And of course, they use it with, uh, you know, democracy promotion around the world. They use it with, uh, you know, this talk about democracy at home anytime they don't like uh, being criticized. As far as Donald Trump and, you know, the media goes, yeah, if you had, you know, the expropriation of CNN or something like that, that would certainly be a major violation of liberalism in the classical sense. Uh, Would it be a violation of democracy? Probably not if it had, you know, that amount of popular support. Uh, That would show that, you know, democracy can certainly be um, uh, it can have that Caesarist element. It can have, you know, mm-hmm. a leader who wants to do something uh, that uh, the people are not going to resist um, is entirely possible. Now, that's at least possible at uh, as a first move, right? Uh, in the long run, you know, chances are that the public becomes dissatisfied with a press that is squelched by, um, a, you know, a popular leader, because what they'll begin doing is like, yeah, okay, so then you have this, you know, Caesarist figure. And, uh, you know, his his government has various flaws. It's, it's, you know, failing to deliver what the public wants. Then the public, you know, wants to hear about why this is happening and their demand to hear about why it's happening becomes a demand for a free press. Um, so I think that even there you would see that uh, the public is probably not driving some sort of anti uh, free speech sentiment that, in fact, the public is very much on the side of free speech. But they may be against the particular oligarchs or the particular elite that is, uh, you know, has an advantage in speech right now, which is CNN or whatever mm-hmm. institution we care to name. So there's, you know, a, a sort of complicated picture there. Um, and again, I don't want to ever say that, you know, the public is good and the elite is always bad. Sometimes the elite can be quite good. Sometimes the public can be quite bad. But in general, the public is not the instigator of most of the bad things. In general, it takes, you know, someone who is either an individual of great ambition or it takes a whole, you know, sort of cadre and group of manipulators in order to bring out the worst in the people and subvert and damage the constitution. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's a good spot maybe to wrap up the conversation. Um, Lots of good stuff. Obviously we could keep going on this, but this is a logical stopping point. Um, Dan, just for the listeners, where, where can they go if they want to see more of your work and what you're up to? Yeah, they should visit uh, modernagejournal.com. And uh, that is my, um, uh, well, that's the quarterly journal I edit. Uh, which has a great history going back to 1957 and is published uh, in addition to, you know, uh, traditionalist conservatives. You also find such great libertarians as Murray Rothbard all the way through to Attila Sulker in our forthcoming issue. And then uh, I am also uh, a writer at uh, The Spectator, uh, so spectator.us, which is the U.S. edition of the U.K. uh, Spectator, which is, you know, centuries old. And uh, other than that, my work uh, is here and there and kind of everywhere. Okay. So folks, for the links to those things and the other stuff we talked about, you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 165. 
My guest has been Dan McCarthy. Dan, thanks so much for your time, and it was a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Paul. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.